Welcome to another Innovation Forum podcast with me, Ian Welsh. Joining me today is Miles McCarthy, who's Director for Implementation and E-Mobility with the Carbon Trust. Welcome to the podcast, Miles. Hi, Ian. Good to meet you. It's an exciting time at the moment, thinking around climate change. I mean, there's a lot happening. The climate crisis is progressing, but there are reasons for some hope with that COP26 rapidly approaching and ever more companies and organisations setting challenging net zero targets in tight timeframes. So to set the scene a little, Miles, what are the standout climate challenges for you right now? Certainly things are moving at quite a pace and we're seeing a huge amount of commentary from companies and countries, sectors as well, looking at what the implications are and the rates at which change needs to happen and the rate at which alternative cleaner technologies need to come into all aspects of global economies. Certainly from a business side, we've moved from a small number of companies or even lots of companies making smaller commitments to actually seeing really significant step change targets being set. And the challenges will now be how the underlying frameworks help those companies and those sectors to really make those transitions and whether the technologies and the drive for change, whether it be looking at raw materials, whether it be looking at power supplies, transportation and the drivers to make those transitions support those reduction trajectories that are being set. So lots and lots of commitments, but the next real challenge is making it happen and making progress. That's the key overlying challenge is actually really starting to see significant progress being made at a pace that's required to make those curves. There is a sense of universality emerging, isn't there? This is something that everybody's getting involved in rather than just the kind of outliers that perhaps there was in the past. So let's take a little bit of COP26. What are the kind of big picture outcomes that you're hoping to see? In terms of strengthening commitments, obviously that's going to be the most important. And I think there's been a lot of good progress being made in the last year or so. We've seen US making significant movements forwards. We've seen here in the UK further significant ambitions being set. Overall, seeing those targets being crystallised and moving forwards, I think does set a really important framework. There's some big issues, though, that will need to be worked through, carbon markets and how the overall emission reductions can be achieved across wide-ranging economies, sectors and technologies as well. And, of course, there's lots of interests within that to push the direction in one direction or the other. But fundamentally, it's important that the scale of reduction and the pace of reduction is achieved and changes are pulling in the right direction and everything that's being implemented and crystallised is actually pulling in the correct direction and, and making reductions as is expected. And I think there's a lot of conversation on that area as well. People are starting to challenge the end-to-end impacts of changing technologies or changing commercial models. That's a good thing. That's a good thing to open the bonnet and say, what are we actually doing here? What is the impact of some of these changes? And are they all doing the right thing? Are they all achieving the goal? Or are we making one step forward and two steps back? It's really having those conversations at a significant scale and recognising that with the rate at which we have to decarbonise, we've got to get things right and we've got to move all in the same direction. I think there's a lot of hands up saying we want to play this game and participate, but it's now getting the practicalities of moving forwards in a collective group at the right speed in operation, which is going to be the real challenge. Are there some details that we should look for from COP26? In some respects, we could write the high-level community right now, but what are the kind of small details that we should be looking for from the COP26 meeting that you think would be an indication that things are really moving in the right direction at the right pace, as you say? 
My work is focused a lot more with corporates and corporate commitments and also corporate roadmaps and working across their value chains, working with their wider stakeholders, customers, investors and suppliers to move forward as technology providers. But of course, they're operating alongside country commitments and the global commitments in that respect. For me, from the corporate side is really some areas where there's a need to develop some further robustness around what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, what do various targets and achieving targets really mean. So we've seen huge progress and success from science-based targets being set by companies. We have you know, nearly 2,000 companies now globally that are committed to SBTI. We're seeing a lot of companies like countries setting net zero ambitions as well. But there's a lot of detail that's actually quite important around how do you achieve that and what does that mean? So I think we're going to be seeing some clarifications around how different measures can be appropriately assessed and measured, including areas such as offsets and negative technologies and what we call nature-based solutions that a lot of markets are looking to develop. How do we evaluate solutions in those spaces that can deliver credible benefits and can be used as part of a package of measures that can realistically be claimed to decarbonize a sector, a product, a service, or whatever you might be looking at. I think that's the area where there's a lot of chat now and there's a lot of noise. There's been some consultation, but we need some formalization of the frameworks that are appropriate. And there will be a lot of challenge and there will be a lot of people making positive claims, but then finding that actually they're getting more negative challenge to their claims or to their plans than they anticipated. And that's a good thing because that allows discussion and challenge to be made to say, are we doing the right thing? Is this moving us in the right direction? A lot of unintended consequences will come into play as well as, as these things play out. So then let's think a bit more about how companies are engaging then. What extent have you seen that companies becoming more sophisticated when it comes to engaging with their own climate challenges? Certainly, we've seen a lot of progress around target setting. We've seen the requirement really to move beyond one's own boundaries and actually look at the whole value chain, which is completely the right thing to do. For most companies, the scale of emissions within their value chain and even within their supply chain upstream is typically much greater than their own emissions. So it's important that that whole value chain is looked at. And that then brings along, once you've looked at that, measured that, and and maybe set a target around that, you then need to make some progress in reducing that or look at how you change your value chain, your products, your suppliers to reduce the end-to-end impact of your products and services. And that then opens up a great box of cross-working and integration and discussion to support each other along the value chain. Companies are working extensively now with their key suppliers. They're looking at their customers' use of their products and saying, actually, how can we do things differently that actually moves forwards and moves forwards significantly? That opportunity to gain much larger benefits from working along the supply chain wasn't something that was, I don't think, in play in, in almost any sector just a few years ago. But that's becoming the norm. And the great thing, of course, is that companies are finding that when they speak to their suppliers upstream or their customers downstream, often those stakeholders are already making progress themselves and they're welcoming the cross-working to try and address the challenges. What are the tools then that have helped companies do this level of engagement with suppliers and with customers? Well, I think the first one was tools around helping to measure and evaluate the emissions outside of one's own activities. Traditionally, companies have measured what we call their scope one, scope two emissions, the emissions that relate to the energy used or other future emissions from their own operations. That's step one. But actually, 
the norm now and the processes now that companies are going through is to quite quickly make an evaluation of the larger typically emissions outside of their own operations and start to quantify those and start to focus on the areas where there are larger areas of impact that they can then reduce. And then starting to then develop a plan of how you're going to go about managing that. A lot of the innovation in terms of moving that forwards is actually within the organization itself, actually sitting down with, for example, your buyers and saying who are responsible for all of your supply chain and saying, actually, we need to think about what we're buying, where we're buying it from. We need to talk to our suppliers, not as a customer, but as a partner, perhaps, and we may even need to switch from using that type of supply or that type of raw material or input to something very different. That's actually a really interesting dynamic to see that that big part of a business who typically are focused on cost reduction or looking at quality actually now need to really think about the environmental impact of what they are buying and selling and also maybe moving from a commodity-based short-term relationship with suppliers to perhaps a longer-term, more focused relationship that really looks at more details around that supply chain and perhaps even further up the supply chain to say, well, what is it we're actually supplying here and what components are we putting into our product that And what are the implications of those components? A good example is the car industry, which is seeing huge evolution with the emergence of electrification of transport. One of the key areas of challenge, of course, is the emissions related to the use of vehicles, whether they're consuming petrol, diesel or electricity. But then the bigger question, the area that the industry is getting challenged on is where are these vehicles being manufactured? What are the components of these vehicles? There's lots of, for example, battery going into these. What's the supply chain look like for those batteries? What energies and emissions are related to that? And of course, finally, how is the product being recycled and the materials being reused at the end of its life? That's a whole end-to-end evaluation and business modelling of actually making that work appropriately in a decarbonised world. But it's completely obvious and logical to have that breadth of view and to plan your business and your whole value chain around that. It's interesting to see if those buyer-supplier relationships, how how they change, particularly if there's a kind of critical mass of buyers beginning to demand of suppliers, well, here's what we need you to do. Once the suppliers being being asked by all their customers to really change the way that they do their business, that then I think is a a tipping point where it may then occur where there's a really significant difference made. Science-based targets, the growth of of, of science-based targets has been a real feature of the past few years. It's still fairly early days, of course, but do you think that they are living up to the expectation? Because this has been the route that so many companies have gone down in terms of how we're going to solve these problems. I think they've offered a very important step forward, and that has been to move from a few years ago, a positive being we're doing something good and we're reducing, to we're now doing something good or planning to do something good, and we're reducing at a pace that's appropriate to what's required. We're not just walking to our destination, but we're moving at a speed that will get us there in time. That's a really important part. Of course, that rate at which you've got to make progress is getting faster and faster. The curve is getting steeper and steeper as we take longer and longer to start making that progress. So that's, I think, a really important step. And we've seen a huge amount of commitment to science-based targets. We've seen a stepping up of the level of ambition of those targets towards 1.5 degrees. And we're now starting to see people exploring, okay, what does it look like beyond perhaps 10 years? And what's the journey look like to a net zero situation that's required by mid-century? The next challenge, and the one I think perhaps so far 
hasn't yet been really tested and is most important is starting to make progress and starting to meet that curve. Science-based target initiative have required companies from when they started to not just set a five to 15 year timeline for their science-based target, but also set interim targets. And some of our clients are now getting to the point where those interim targets are coming up, 2022, 2023, they need to demonstrate that they have made progress. Some companies will have made that progress and will have reduced. Some of them may not have made that progress yet. But we're starting to need companies to actually show they are making progress because those science-based target timelines are not that long. The curves are quite steep. Companies need to demonstrate that they are moving down that curve, which is a great thing. It suddenly moves a, a real focus on all aspects of the business because all aspects of the business are being measured to say, are we making progress across our horizons? Are we making progress in our supply chain? Are we making progress in our property and our operations? Are we making progress in how our products are used in the marketplace? And of course, once you get the easier stuff done, then the more challenging and more innovative, more disruptive stuff that we said a few years ago, we hopefully will come along. Now it needs to be enacted. I think the next few years, a real focus on achieving implemented savings and reductions and not limited just to scope one, two, but actually looking along the whole value chain is going to become a real important part of what companies need to demonstrate and what stakeholders, whether it be customers, investors, or any other stakeholders, will want to hold them to and to say, how are you progressing? Let's see the results. I think you're right that the use of interim targets or the setting interim targets now is, is really interesting. And I wonder how much of that's down to so many consumer goods companies, of course, committed in 2010 to have zero deforestation by 2020, and none of them achieved it. And then partly because it certainly seems to many of us that it was because they didn't get the targets right along the, the route to zero deforestation was just simply not mapped out. So it does feel that there's a much greater mapping out now of interim targets to get towards to 2040, 2050 net zero targets. Let's think a bit about engaging with value chains then. What do you think are the key messages that companies need if they're using science-based targets? How do they communicate their use with their value chain? And are there particular incentives that can work with suppliers, do you think? I think the important thing is changing the dynamic and the communication relationship between the company and its supplier. Lots of companies have major suppliers, and some of them probably would call them perhaps even partners that they have a longer-term relationship with. Some of them maybe have less so and are more buying off a commodity marketplace or a short-term trading relationship. The importance of getting those reductions in the supply chains onto the agenda for those discussions and those meetings. And we're seeing it. We're seeing companies approaching us across all sectors saying, can you help us? We need to understand our missions. We need to set targets. We need to communicate what our plans are, what our strategy is around sustainability. And you ask the question, why are you coming to do this today in 2021? And often the answer is because one of our major customers is asking questions, you know, or our competitors are starting to make a noise in the marketplace and, our, and their customers are listening. So that really does make a big difference. And of course, it isn't always just about sharpening the pencil and making some small improvements. It may well be saying, we're not sure if your product is appropriate for our use in the future because there's an alternative that can deliver a significant reduction or we need to move below where we think you can move to. And you know, some of the commodity markets that are areas of significant emissions, steel and aluminium and others, they're starting to see the emergence of differentiation in a commodity marketplace for green aluminium or green steel and other products. And those areas of supply that can deliver a lower impact 
solution, perhaps powered by renewable energy or, or whatever, or can provide more recycled content, are wanting to now differentiate that in the marketplace and sell that perhaps at a premium because it can deliver a much lower embedded carbon footprint for the customers downstream. And we're seeing customers that use metals, as an example, starting to source cleaner solutions. And one of the answers might be to go to a supplier that can deliver a cleaner equivalent. But the other answer might be to say, we're going to stop using aluminium, steel, cement, whatever it might be, and we're going to use something different. We're going to redesign our product to make it lower emission by alternative materials, or we're going to use another material that allows us a much greater level of recyclability or something like that. So that all of those dynamics are really opening the commercial chats, the conversations, the relationships, the strategies around how you source raw materials, but also how you develop your products and choose materials that wasn't around just a few years ago. And I guess the beauty of a science-based target is that in those conversations, it enables the buyer to point to the science-based target and say, look, here's why we need to change our relationship, or here's why you need to supply us this commodity or this product differently. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's data, you know, there's companies out there with reports. There's a report that Holstar put out recently, maybe a year ago, showing the embedded emissions or the footprint, the materials that go into one of their vehicles. And I think they were comparing, a, I think I can't remember, it was internal combustion engine, Volvo, XC, 40 or something to a Polestar 2, I think, or something similar. And they show you the pie chart of the materials that are going in and the emissions related to those different elements. And as an example, aluminium plays a big big part and a growing part in vehicles. They can give the figure. If you've got in the marketplace a variety of carbon intensities of aluminium, ranging from small number, two, three, four kilograms per kilogram aluminium, to 20 and plus, 20 and more, it's a huge variety. And if a quarter or a third of your product's footprint is aluminium, well, there's an obvious way that you can significantly reduce its footprint. And it's to be selective around where you source your raw materials. And also, of course, to look at recycling of the materials that go into it, because some of those materials are easier to recycle than others. Looking forward and taking into account all the things we've been discussing, do you think we're kidding ourselves that the Paris 1.5 Celsius pathway is achievable? It's a difficult one because we're seeing quite significant temperature change already, which makes people start to try and project. I think there's two parts to that question. One is, are we able to keep the temperature below 1.5? And the second one is, are we able to achieve the decarbonisation rates that the models say we need to achieve in the timelines or the carbon budgets, as they're sometimes referred to, to achieve that? I think the second one is probably easier to answer and maybe is easier for me to try and get my head around. And that is to say, there's lots of technical solutions out there. And if there is the will and the coordination to make significant changes at pace, then there should be no reason why we cannot take a lot of the carbon emissions, the greenhouse gas emissions out of industries and sectors and solutions at a quick pace. And if we look at some of the changing expectations in markets, you know, it wasn't that many years ago when the idea that we would all be switching to fully electric vehicles in the 2020s would have been just seen as absurd, whereas now it seems to be perfectly achievable and it just requires a bit of coordination and the technology works. The idea that fossil fuel powered power stations would, once they're built, would then run for 30 years. Well, I don't think anybody would realistically expect that. And that's obviously starting to make people look at balance sheets and investments and say, have we backed the right horse here? 
the ability to move technology, to move sectors, to drive down emissions, and to find financially competitive solutions that can offer a cleaner solution is there for pretty much all of the sectors that we, we might want to look at. As to whether that then is achieved is, of course, where things like COP26 need to deliver, but other things need to work. And sometimes it feels a little bit like we're making some progress and then somebody unearths a step back somewhere, which is frustrating. But as to whether we then achieve that, but then find the temperature rises higher than 1.5 degrees, I don't know the answer to that. But what I guess we do know is that if we make great progress quickly, we can mitigate against a lot worse situation. And hopefully we can see things stabilise at a position that we can manage to live with. I think in the last few months, and maybe even last couple of years, but certainly the weather issues that we've seen recently makes people realise just how problematic extreme weather can be. And maybe COVID shows us that maybe we're not as robust and capable of dealing with things as we perhaps thought we were. We're not as invincible as the teenage man thought it was two years ago. There certainly are, as you said, and as I said right at the beginning, there are lots of exciting things potentially happening. So maybe the answer to my question is that perhaps we might not be kidding ourselves, but an awful lot has to happen for us to achieve the 1.5 Celsius pathway. There's a lot happening and there's a lot going to be coming up through the rest of the year at COP26 and elsewhere. But for now, Miles McCarthy, thanks very much for helping us plot our way through. Thank you very much.